beginning uh, a series today on a subject which I trust will be relevant to all of us, the subject of work. Seven years ago, I can't believe it's that long, I taught a series on this, but I'm engaging again because whether you are currently paid or not for what you do, the subject of work is just a major part of our lives. And uh, so often, unfortunately, sometimes, but when people first meet us, after they get our name, what's the very next thing they ask us? What do you do? By which they mean, do you have a job? And what is the nature of that job? If you work full-time, then around a third of your waking hours each week are spent on work uh, in your job, and then you'll be doing other stuff as well. Outside of that, the average person works for around 44 years, I'm told, so that's almost a quarter of your life is spent at work. And the issue of work consumes the waking thoughts of many, and I think it's such an important subject that we're going to look at it again over a series of weeks. So I'll be looking at work from a number of angles uh, over these coming weeks, including what the Bible says about how we are to view our work, coping with the pressures of work, the influence that we have on our working environment, and how to live with integrity in a working environment which expects us sometimes to compromise. And I hope to be interviewing some people over the course of the series as well. Some of this material comes from a series that Rich Nathan, a friend of mine, did many, many years ago, uh, mixed in with a variety of other sources. I've added my own stuff to that and so on, but I just wanted to credit him with the, the seed of this series. So in looking at the subject of work, I'm not only addressing those who receive a paycheck in exchange for their work, some of you uh, will be currently unwaged, and uh, you may be a parent, for instance, at running a family home. Clear, clearly, you are working, and often harder than those who get to go out to work, away from home. Some of you may be what uh, many would call unemployed, and for you, this may be a painful subject. You may be desperately frustrated that you don't have the opportunity to work for a wage. Whether you are paid for what you do or not, unless you fit into the category of being a sloth, then the truth is you are a worker and you spend many of your waking hours working. It's such a major part of our lives that it's worthy of spending a few talks looking at what God says about it so that we can thrive in what we spend much of our time doing. So I wonder how you feel about your work. Some of us look forward to our work uh, for some, it is invigorating, it is fulfilling, it uh, enables you to use your gifts to achieve something that brings you satisfaction. So getting out of bed on a Monday morning is you know, not difficult at all for you. It's like, yeah, I get to go to work. This is exciting. For others of you, well, first of all, you are thrilled that tomorrow morning <laughs> differs from any other Monday morning in recent history. It's a bank holiday. You're not expected to get out. You've got a shorter working week. That's awesome. And incidentally, it happens to be the warmest potentially bank holiday Monday at the beginning of May in the whole of recorded history. So it's going to be awesome. But on a normal Sunday, as it begins to come to an end, some of you feel what is known as that Monday feeling. The moment when Sunday stops feeling like a Sunday and the anxiety of Monday kicks in. And then tomorrow, waking up Going to work might feel a bit like this. 
boom, work just hits you. You have to scrape yourself out of bed to face going to work. And this picture perhaps captures you quite well. <laughs> and then when you finally get to work, it may be boring, it may be burdensome, it may be really stressful. And maybe some of you can relate to this picture when your boss asks how you're doing halfway through your shift. <laughs> Hanging in, you know, just putting a brave face on it and getting through the time. So for some of you, from the time that you arrive at work tomorrow, you'll be looking forward to the weekend. This caption, the first five days after the weekend are always the hardest. You guys who are listening to this on some sort of podcast are missing out on all these wonderful pics. But many of you who go to work are probably experiencing, on some level, struggles, of different kinds, maybe you've got a very demanding or difficult boss. Some of you work on the church staff and maybe that would be the case for you, I don't know. But sometimes it's people at work that make our life really, really difficult. My father had the experience of sharing an office who in his opinion was obnoxious to many people but particularly vicious towards him. And for a couple of years really made his working life just almost intolerable. And the stress was so much that he developed a twitch in one of his eyes, which was almost constant for those years. The job he enjoyed. It was going to work, which he hated because of this colleague. And that level of stress was only relieved when, to his relief, early retirement became an option. And as he retired, his twitching eye was calmed. I recently read that UK workers have one of the lowest levels of job satisfaction in the world. Two-thirds of employees feel they don't have enough time to get their work done. And apparently the number of work days lost to stress, depression, and anxiety has increased by a quarter in the past five years. And for many of us, there seems to be a gulf between our work and our faith. Monday morning is so far removed from Sunday morning, it's like another world. But I hope we'll discover this morning that that is not the biblical view of work, which is what we're going to look at today. So we're going to read from Ephesians. If you've got a Bible or a device, as long as you promise not to do your emails or social media, you can look at the Bible on your phone. We're going to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And here the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's teaching them about household stuff. He's saying, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. So this is verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good you do, whether you are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now you might ask, what does a passage on masters and slaves, how is that relevant to work? Well, some of you, you just need no explanation. The peril is really obvious to you. If you knew my boss, if you knew the demands, the expectations placed upon me in exchange for basic subsistence. Just a comment on that word slavery. At the time that Paul is writing in the Roman Empire, generally speaking, 
uh, it was not like the shameful slave trade that we've seen in recent centuries. Many people actually sold themselves into slavery and were known as bond servants. And although the masters did in that culture have absolute rights over their slaves, they generally treated them with respect and dignity. And so slaves were often well-educated, they could marry, they could have families, they could accumulate personal wealth, they could run a business, and they could purchase their freedom. And in verse 8, in any case, it, these principles applies to us because it says, whether you know that the Lord will reward each one of us for whatever good you do, whether you're a slave or free. So whichever you are, this passage applies. So we can find helpful insights, especially in terms of serving our employer, and indeed, being a good employer. If you have your own business, you are an employer, you might just listen to what he says about how to handle people who serve you. Let's begin with just looking at a number of ways of viewing work and then how they line up with the biblical view. So as I describe these different characters and the way that they view their work, you might just want to listen and ask yourself whether you recognize yourself in any of them. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands at the end, but it may be that God just wants to prompt and highlight something to you today. So let's begin with someone we'll call Sue. She bears no known likeness to anyone in this church. So Sue grew up believing that hard work was next to godliness. Her school reports were consistently positive, A-star positive, unlike mine. My school reports were consistent. But they consistently said he could do better if he applied himself. Sue, unlike me, she thrives on success and fears failure. She is driven to excel at all the parts of her job. She gets in earlier than her colleagues. She leaves later, often taking her work home with her so that it invades her personal time. It invades her spare time, her devotional time, her family time, invades her relationships. And here's Sue's belief, really. This is the first flawed belief. I can derive my meaning and my self-worth from my work. Sue's drive to live for her work is similar to what we see sometimes on the men and women who take part on the television program, The Apprentice, where Sir Alan Sugar and his two psychics assess the potential of an ambitious group of individuals who are striving to win this quarter of a million pound investment from Alan Sugar. And most of them are extremely high achievers as they arrive on that show. And I've heard many of them, as you probably have, say in the boardroom, look, I'm here to give it 110%. I promise, I can promise you 200%. Slight overstatement because it's obviously not quite possible. Because their work, anyway, they're saying this because their work means everything to them. What's wrong with Sue's view? Shouldn't we aim to be successful in our careers? Shouldn't we work hard? Shouldn't we excel? Yes, yes, and yes, we should. But when we derive our identity, our self-worth from our work, work actually becomes to us an idol. Idolatry might feel like a bit of an old-fashioned word, but it simply means looking to someone or something other than God to define our identity. Why does God come down so strongly on idolatry? It's in the first commandment of the 10 before he even mentions not killing people. Two reasons. First of all, it's the way the universe is supposed to work. All the glory belongs to him. We're to worship the Lord with all our heart and serve him only. The other reason is that what idolatry does to us, 
Those of you who were here last week would have heard Debbie speak about this. She reminded us of our identities as citizens of heaven, that we are loved by God. If our self-worth is based on our work or anything other than God, we put ourselves in a position of insecurity. Because how we feel about ourselves will be linked directly to how our work is going. So we may have times of great success in our work, we can feel really pleased with ourselves, we feel inflated, bigged up, we're confident in who we are, but we will also go through times when our work is particularly hard. And that can have a hugely negative effect on our self-worth. And those of us who have spent time out of paid work will understand the impact that it can have on our self-esteem. As important as work is in our lives, when we place all of our self-worth in our job, we can become easily unsettled. But God is constant. Our passage this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6. We read that whole letter that Paul wrote, the first chapters of the book, the first two chapters. Paul writes some of the things that God thinks about each one of us, which include things like this. I'm worth something. I've met Jesus who gives me life and grace. I'm noticed by the God of the universe. He loves me. He chose me to be his. I can relate to someone eternal who knows me intimately and cares for me, who is always consistent, who never fails, who never gives way under stress, who really can lay a foundation for my life. That's in the first two chapters of this book. These are things that we can base our self-worth on. That way we can come to our work with self-worth rather than looking for it in our worth in our work a biblical biblical view of work is that we bring meaning to our work rather than looking for meaning from our work as i shared two weeks ago jesus's yoke is easy his burden is light and we will have to carry some heavy stuff sometimes but if we're really finding our self-worth in him we won't be anywhere near as burdened as if we were striving to succeed to meet our own need for significance. Those of us who are burdened, stressed, crushed by the expectations of our job, it's worth considering whether we might have some of Sue's view of work in our approach to our job. So that's the first unhelpful view of work, is I can derive my meaning, my self-worth from my work. The second view is held by a character I'm gonna call Bill, Bill is a machinist for a company that makes parts for lorries. But he views his job as meaningless. He lives for the day he can leave his job and go and work for a church, or at least for a Christian organization, to somehow go into full-time ministry, to become a full-time Christian worker. And he spends his days waiting for 5.30 when he can knock off and he can get on with what really matters serving at church or through some area of ministry at church with other people doing like Christian stuff. While Sue is looking for all her meaning from her job, Bill finds no meaning in his job because his view of work is this, what really counts is full-time Christian work. Now what's wrong with that view? People who share Bill's view often drive off to work, they wave goodbye to their housemates or their spouse or whoever they live with. At the same time, sort of wave goodbye to God, you know. I'm off to work. I'm looking forward to 5.30 when I can be free again to do God stuff, but now I've just got to 
do this job. But a biblical view of work is that we never leave, leave the Lord behind. If we just look at this passage here in Ephesians 6, you'll notice in verse 5, we see Christ. In verse 6, we see Christ and God. In verse 7, we see the Lord. In verse 8, we see the Lord. In verse 9, we see he who is both their master and yours. In other words, the Lord appears six times, appears in all five verses. He's involved, really involved with our work. The Lord's with us at work. We can know his smile as we type that report, as we solder that pipe, care for that patient, change those nappies, clear up that mess. The Lord sees it all and he cares about it all. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Timothy Keller says that rather than being a distraction from God, work, whether it's paid or unpaid, is part of God's plan for humanity. It is a way that we can serve him and our communities. And that's true whether you are waged or unwaged, whether you get a paycheck from an organization that overtly uh, exists to promote the Christian faith or from one that doesn't. So every Christian is by definition in full-time Christian work because Jesus is our boss. If we've committed our lives to following the Lord, then your employer and mine is actually Jesus Christ. Verse five says our employer is Christ. We're slaves of Christ, verse six. We are serving the Lord, verse seven. He'll reward you, verse eight. And your boss, verse nine, has a boss. Same as yours, he's both their master and yours. And so a biblical view of work is that you serve Jesus in your work, regardless of the type of work you're doing. A slave or a servant often does things that might be viewed as menial tasks. Well, how does the Lord view those things, these repetitive menial tasks? Verse 6 talks about doing the will of God from your heart, doing the will of God. So a slave serving a master or a servant serving or an employee serving a boss, doing the will of God. He doesn't say your work's menial and of no value. He says, it's my will. You're doing my will in your place of work. And we're ultimately rewarded by God, as it says in verse 7, for whatever good we do. So whatever we do with our time, whether it's paid or unpaid, when we do it as though doing it for Jesus, we'll be rewarded, including for all those things that might feel really mundane, really unseen, really unimportant. Meals that you make every evening for which no one thinks to thank you. Let's just consider nappies for a moment. A baby will probably use about six a day. That's over, over 2,000 in the first year, okay? Not all of which are odor-free. And your baby doesn't even stop to thank you. It's partly, to be fair to them, they don't have any words yet. They don't actually speak and could not do that. But when they do learn language, they never think back to say, thank you for those thousands of times you cared for me in that way. And indeed, when they're adults, my kids still haven't actually thanked me or mainly my wife for all that we changed, you know. Menial things. Attending that lecture, doing that essay on time, reading your child a bedtime, a bedtime story, filing, answering phone calls. So far from being meaningless a way of filling our time until we can do the real work of serving at church or through some ministry. Everything we put our hand to can have eternal significance. So Sue says, work means everything to me. Bill says, work means nothing to me. Both 
errant views. The third view of work, I go to work to witness. Chris sees his job simply as a platform for him to share his faith. Now, before I unpack the weakness of this view, I do just want to really compliment those of you who do share your faith at work. I was talking just now with Helen Briggs, some of you will know her, and uh, she runs a hairdressing business, has done for many, many years. And last week, she said she was doing a young woman's hair, and as they were talking about all sorts of things, uh, she told, this woman told her about her marriage, which wasn't in great shape, and Helen was privileged just to be able to share how God had helped her in her relationship, and offered to pray for her, and she received an email later thanking her for, you know, her counseling, her care. And just this week, she said on Monday, uh, somebody came in and had a problem in their face, in their head, and uh, this woman asked Helen, do you know a faith healer? And she said, no, but I have a faith that heals. Could I pray for you? And right there in the hairdressing chair, laid hands on her head and prayed for her. Just wonderful, you know. And she's done that. I was just reflecting. She couldn't believe it. I said, how often do you do, how often does God come up in a conversation at work? And she said, well, sometimes four times a day and sometimes not for a week or two. But, you know, averaging out maybe a couple of times a week over the decades, that is now thousands of people that Helen has shared her faith with at work. And she's one among many, but worth applause anyway. Shall we say thank you, Helen? We are Christ's ambassadors wherever God has sent us. Because, you know, for many people you might meet at your place of work, you might be the only real committed Christian they have ever engaged with. Without you, they are left to find their view of what a follower of Jesus is by glimpses they get on television. Characters such as Father Ted, with Father Dougal, and Father Jack. <laughs> Many are familiar with the Vicar of Dibley, or the Rev. For some, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons is a typical Christian. And while he may be a positive kind of guy, he's very, very irritating. In one episode, he calls his pastor, which he does regularly with silly little questions, and in exasperation, his pastor eventually says, Ned, why don't you try one of the other religions? They're all much the same. <laughs> now, none of these are particularly inspiring models, okay, of what a follower of Jesus is really like, are they? God has put each of us with our unique set of gifts, our unique personalities in our workplace for a purpose, and one of those purposes is to be a witness, to be Christ's ambassador at work, okay. So our workplace is a place where evangelism may well happen. But having said that, there's a flaw in the view that says, I only go to work to witness. Firstly, if like Chris, you see your workplace as simply a place to evangelize, it might actually have the very opposite effect. You might find Chris standing by the water cooler or coffee machine all day, looking for opportunities to witness, half-heartedly doing the minimum to get by, and often other members of the team carrying more weight as a result. Why should a colleague listen to him about Jesus when he can't even get his job done well? What distinguishes him? Why listen to him? You know, Helen's focus is doing a great job of cutting the hair of every individual client, being diligent in her craft, being a great boss and business owner, an amazing colleague. And it's from that place that sharing her faith naturally springs. 
And secondly, Chris's view assumes there is nothing intrinsically worthwhile in what I'm doing in my job. And as we've seen, there is value because you're doing it for the Lord. And as we serve wholeheartedly, uh, uh, sorry, and we are to serve wholeheartedly as though doing it for him. God deserves our very best in whatever we're doing, including our work. The problem with work equals witness where work becomes simply an opportunity to evangelize is it just reduces all of life to evangelism. But that's simply not the case. It's a high priority, sure, but it's one of many. Life is everything that we do in serving him and living for him. Some of you will recognize Jessica Ennis-Hill, who, among other things, won the gold medal at the 2012 Olympics for the heptathlon, which includes seven different athletic events, hurdles, high jump, javelin, and so on. The Christian life is like a heptathlon in the Olympics. There are many different aspects to it. And so, Ephesians, this letter, tells us the relationship with God. That relationship with God is a lot more than just evangelism. Chapter one talks about our relationship with God. Chapter three, with the church. Chapter five, with the family. Chapter six addresses children, work, and people who don't believe in Jesus. So this is not a single event. We need to take this heptathlon view of the Christian life. So it's a fine thing to witness at work, but never to the detriment of being a superb employee, a great boss, doing a good job. So these different possible views of work, Sue lives to work. Her job and career have become her identity. Bill says, I live to do Christian stuff outside of work, or better still, to work full-time for the church. Chris says, I just go to work to witness. And the last few, I go to work to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. This view says, for the season of my life that I'm doing this job or this role, whether I am waged or not for it, I'm assuming God wants me here and I'm going to serve him wholeheartedly in it. As I said at the beginning, some of you will be struggling at work. And the truth is that God may not change your circumstances. You may go back tomorrow, or if you're fortunate enough to be able to take this bank holiday, you go back on Tuesday, but you'll go back to the same oppressive, stress-filled environment. It may be one day right for you to move job, but this week you will be working in that same situation. But there is hope because God can change things about your work. Your circumstances may be the same. He can change some things. And these things depend on us believing what we've heard this morning, believing the scriptures, and seeing things in the light of this passage. So first of all, he can change our boss. It might help to think, you know, I'm not going to work anymore for that difficult, irritating taskmaster of a boss, who I love in the Lord and pray for often. I'm going to work instead this week for the Lord. The passage we're looking at here, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6 to 7, in the message translation, I just love this. He captures it fantastically well. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Worthy of me reading it again. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do. 
And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. So I'm going to repair this car as if it belongs to Jesus. I'm going to cook this meal as though Jesus was going to eat it. I'm going to care for this person as though it was Jesus. I'm going to write this essay as though it's for the Lord. I'm going to run this office like it's his office. I'm going to care for this patient, this client, this customer like it's for the Lord. That will change your level of job satisfaction and renew a vision of doing the mundane well. For those of you who are not currently in paid employment, just because you're not being paid for a job doesn't have to mean that you're denied some expression of work, some fulfillment in it. You can serve the Lord wholeheartedly through the things that you're spending your time doing, volunteering or helping others in, in whatever way. So first of all, he can change your boss. Secondly, he can change your benefits package. The Bible assures us that we will be rewarded by God. And uh, it says in the message translation here, good work will get you good pay from the master. Me doing a good job of this unseen, unappreciated piece of work will not only be noticed by God, but he will reward me in some way. We don't know how to measure that. We will be rewarded for it. And then thirdly, he can change us. He can transform our hearts and our minds. He can change what motivates us, change our hearts about work, and so we can think, I'm doing this for you, Jesus. I'm doing this for you. I'm going to serve you wholeheartedly. I don't like my boss much. I don't like this oppressive work environment. I'm going to do this for you. So no matter what your working circumstances are, I hope that you would have found some encouragement this morning that your identity is not found in your work, but in God. And because of that, we can bring meaning to our work rather than getting our meaning from it. That God cares about everything you do, about how you spend your week. And I pray that as we look at the subject of work over these next few weeks, that you will find his purpose, his meaning, and his reward. Mm -hmm.